Okay, we're all done, ready to go. Um, one of the things that I found that I so much love about this church is that we preach out of the Word of God, we preach out of the Bible. And, uh, you know, you guys might think it's really strange that I would say something like that, but I've been places where they just don't. Uh, and I remember the first time that I was here, I, I made a little joke saying, you know, we really need to invest in buying some tabs for the Bible because we go through it that often. I was only half kidding. We still haven't got any tabs, Pastor Frank. But uh, we could have them. The, um, one of the things that I also found is that there is such a famine out there for truth today. And it's a famine that you need to recognise isn't felt. You know that when you're, when you're hungry, you feel the hunger. You, you feel a the hunger, there's an appetite there and you feel a hunger. But when there is a famine, you go beyond hungry to the point where you don't actually feel it. And so many people don't realise that there is that emptiness, that there is this um, uh, a hunger for truth, but it's not really there. They don't actually experience it. And at that point, the body starts feeding on itself. You know, your own body starts actually feeding on itself. And, uh, and it's a real, real sad thing. You know, the Bible says in the book of Amos, it says, Behold, I send a famine in the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. And I, and I think if we're not in those days right now, gee, we're close, you know. We're really close. So we've been going through the book of Romans. And uh, we started at chapter, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. And today we're going to be going through verse 3 in the book of Romans. And uh, we'll just start with reading those, those few verses. So if you turn to Romans chapter 1. We'll go from, um, read from verse 1 through to 4. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for the truth of the scriptures and we ask you, dear God, that you would continue to work within our lives as this word is brought forward. Father, you would open our hearts, open our minds and our eyes to be able to see the wonderful truth that we have in our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And I pray, dear God, that you be with me as I preach this word and also, dear Lord, that we would have patience to hear the wonderful truth that is found in this incredible reality. Lord, be with us now, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. We've got four verses that we've just gone through. Four verses that introduce this incredible book. And they have both theological and practical implications. Theological because it reveals in a manner of words who God is. Who God is. And what that means for all of mankind. The words in these verses are given to those that are called by his name. So when we look at the, um, the gospel to the Romans, it's the gospel of God and given to believers at that time and to reveal the truth of who God is a little bit more clearly. 
But this isn't to say that this isn't able to be revealed to those that don't believe, that don't know who God is. In fact, practically, the book of Romans is probably the greatest explanation of the gospel, the good news of salvation in all its forms to be found in the Bible. Everything from the nature of Christ, from chapters 1, verses 1 to 4 that we're just going through, to the nature of man, and that's found in chapters 1 to 3. How that came to be in chapter 5, his continuous depravity once God is rejected in verses 17 to 32 of this same chapter, the way of salvation, chapter 5, the Christian relationship to sin in chapter 6, the dual nature of the flesh and the spirit in chapter 7, the eternal security of, of salvation in chapter 8, the sovereignty of God in chapter 9, the free will of man in chapter 12, God's relationship to his chosen people Israel and what that means to us in chapter 11, warnings of matters practical in 16 and how we should live, particularly chapter 1 verse 17 but detailed through chapters 12 to 15. This is an incredible book. And it's a book that I would encourage you, if you haven't quite sunk your teeth into the book of Romans, you need to realise that there has been told that there isn't a book in the Bible that has so impacted Western civilization as this one in particular. It takes an hour and a half, roughly, to read it. And if you really haven't gotten into it yet, you're really doing yourself a disservice as a Christian. So it's worth, worth getting into the book of Romans. So just by review, the first address, we touched on the implication to verse 1. Paul being a servant of Jesus Christ, yet called and separated by God for the ministry. What we touched on was the free will of man and the sovereignty of God over all things. And that was what was addressed particularly. The last time, we considered verse 2 as the link between verses 1 and 3. I know it sounds pretty elementary, that's fair enough, it's a link between 1 and 3. But we wanted to relate exactly who the Gospel is. Who is it that this is addressing particularly? And in that consideration we saw, in that that bracket there where, where it says which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, we recognise how ancient the Gospel is in being promised afore, its means of communication through the prophets of old, and its authority in the Holy Scriptures. Those were a matter of... by by review. We discovered that verse 2 is an explanatory link. It's in brackets explaining the vital link from verse 1 to 3. And it refers to Jesus Christ our Lord. This next portion is probably the most difficult to preach on in one sermon because what we're talking about is the nature of who Christ is. Take a look at it. It says, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. There's so much that's said in that one verse to give us an understanding of who Christ actually is. And we're going to be detailing or touching on these three aspects in particular. One of the questions that we're going to be asking is the same question that Jesus Christ asked. And that is, what think you of Christ? Whose son is he? Particularly, whose son is the Lord Jesus Christ? Also, the nature of the son. And, was God truly manifest in the flesh? And then lastly, why? 
So there's a lot that we're going to go through. So I do pray that you would have patience to deal with this, but also relate it really, really carefully to understand your own salvation and what that means and to be able to better present the gospel to people that they might know the truth. Because unless you have a fundamental understanding of exactly who Christ is, you're going to find yourself in an incredible amount of error. So the first part, what think you of Christ? Whose son is he? Let's take, let's take a better look. It says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, verse 3. That is what we discovered is the gospel of God in verse 2. And it gave some detail about the gospel, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Verse 3 states that it is simply concerning his son. The gospel concerns his son. Our question for the sake of clarity is concerning whose son? Concerning whose son? Now, it's not hard to understand the simple grammar that we've got here. You've got concerning his son, Jesus Christ. The word his is just a simple pronoun. All right? We're talking English grammar. It's a very simple pronoun. It refers to what went before. But there's a nature to it. It's his, which is male. It's also singular. So what we're looking for going before is something that is a noun, but is also male and singular. When we go all the way back, we find that it goes to the separation, separated unto the gospel of God. So we've got Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, then concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's really simple, isn't it? Not difficult. You see that the son here is the son of God. It sounds really simple, but it's amazing how many people actually reject that idea. But just to confirm it a little bit more, if we go all the way down to the fourth verse, it actually says, declared to be the Son of God, with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? And yet, even though we've got it so clearly presented there, there are so many that would reject this idea. They reject the whole concept of what the Bible teaches because they've got a basic idea within their own mind. So we have Jesus Christ presented as that. The answer to this question, it does have eternal significance. The right answer leads life to life and the wrong answer leads life to death. Who Jesus Christ is. What think you of Christ? Whose son is he? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. This is a question that the Lord actually asked the Pharisees a while ago. Now to understand something, just the context. The Pharisees had just finished asking Jesus a whole range of questions. The questions that they were asking him in this particular text were questions designed to trap him. These are very, very intelligent people. Their whole desire was to trap Jesus in his speech. And every single time they tried to trap the Lord in his speech, he gave them an answer. And every time he gave an answer, the Bible says that they marvelled at the answer. Then they would ask him another question, and he would give them another answer. The design of the questions were to trap Christ. Understand they didn't want Christ. They wanted to reject him. So they were asking these questions to trap him in his speech. And again he answered, and the Bible says ahead of time, in that text, they were astonished. Now, it came the Lord's turn to ask one question. 
And this is the question that he asks. Have a look in Matthew 22, and we're going from 41 to 46. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? Now understanding the basic principle that no son is going to be Lord of his father. Okay? That's recognised and it's understood. But they're pondering here, well, hang on, how can David be speaking about Christ as the son. Now, son doesn't necessarily mean a direct, immediate descendant. Son in this text refers to a long-term descendant. So it would have been a great-great-great-grandfather and so forth. Okay? So you are descended from that line. Christ is descended from the line of David, and therefore David is recognised um, in that line. Jesus is the son of David. So, but look, at, look what it says directly after it. This is how astonished they were. They understand that point and they so struggle to answer the question that straight after it says, And no man was able to answer him a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. After attempting numerous questions to trap Jesus in his speech, Jesus asked them one question and neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. It's amazing how the Lord's got a tendency of shutting our mouths a lot of the time, isn't it? And he certainly does it there. But why is this important? Because in the text that we're dealing with, it says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. The same person which is of the seed of David, we discovered is the son of God. And it helps us understand why. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David called him Lord, because though he was a descendant of David according to the flesh, he was also the Son of God. That's why David called him Lord. But this isn't the only place the Lord asked the question. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 16. So we're still in Matthew. Go to 16, chapter 16. We'll have a look at verses 13 to 16. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 16. The Lord asked this question of his disciples also. He says, When the Lord came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah's. Or one of the prophets, he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. What think ye of Christ? Whose Son is he? Let's remember that Christ is not as much the name of Jesus as it is his title. Okay? The Christ is the one, he's the Saviour of the world, the Messiah. We have it in Greek, we've got to transliterate it as Christ. And this is the one which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. We're still in the same text. It's the same one that was prophesied before, that it was promised before. The Bible makes the path clear as well. Jesus said, I am the way 
the truth and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Who else declares that this is the Son of God? Have a look at Matthew chapter 3. So we're still in Matthew. Look at chapter 3. And again we're finding it confirmed in Scripture at the baptism of the Lord when rising up out of the water. Verse 17. And Jesus, when he was baptised, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Again, on Mount Transfiguration, turn forward to chapter 17. This is a point at which the Lord was changed in front of his disciples. We had Peter, James and John there. They were all witnesses. They were there and something occurred during this time where the Lord was transfigured. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration, where he was changed. Matthew chapter 17 verse 5. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. So here we have the Bible itself, God himself declaring Jesus to be the Son. You know, if you've got an enemy, and there's something about you, a characteristic about you that's good, If your enemy promotes that characteristic to somebody else, can you be pretty much confirmed that it's true? Do you understand what I'm saying? So if somebody hates you, but they say, oh, this person, yeah, well, you know, he doesn't lie. That's one thing about him, he doesn't lie. You can guarantee that if the enemy is saying that, it's probably true, yeah? We've got it here also, when the devils are actually declaring Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Stay in Matthew, turn to chapter 8, please. I won't give you too much practice. You're not going all over the place. I tried to keep it in the one book, so that way it's, you know, it's not going to be too much of a stress as much as I could. What I'm wanting to show you here is that the Bible teaches that Jesus is the Son of God, and we're going to be going through those couple of things that I spoke about earlier. But I'm only giving you a sampling, okay? And it's for you to be able to recognise that this is what the Scriptures teach. So we find here in Matthew chapter 8, and have a look at verse 28 and 29. And when he was come to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, there met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? And we've got it again in Mark chapter 1. Don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. So we have here identified clearly that Jesus Christ is presented in the Bible as the Son of God. What does that mean? What does that mean? There was a man in the 4th century, lived in the 4th century, and he also believed that Jesus was the Son of God. He believed it fully. Jesus was the Son of God. But he believed that Jesus was a created being. 
that he had an origin, that he had a beginning. And that through him the Holy Spirit and everything else was created. This man didn't believe that Jesus was anything more than the Son of God. He believed that Christ was of like substance as God, but not the same substance as God. The man's name was Arius. The people we know today as Jehovah's Witnesses are theological descendants from Arius. He lived around about 325 AD, they had the Council of Nicaea. And during this council, Arianism was one of the issues that was brought forward. There was a man by the name of Athanasius. And Athanasius was trying to teach very clearly through the scriptures that Jesus Christ is not only the Son of God, but he is God manifest in the flesh. He is God incarnate. And that's one of the things that we're going to be going through. A proper understanding of who Christ is will lead you toward the truth. Wrong understanding of who Christ is will lead you in error. And that's what we're going to be going through in this next part. This is the second part of the four that we want to touch on. So, in light of this, I can hear the Lord Jesus asking the question, What think you of Christ? Whose son is he? When we look into this text in Romans 1.3, we note that there's something more to it. It would seem just believing that Jesus is the Son of God isn't quite enough. Remember I, I was saying the wrong understanding of who Christ is. Have a look at the text again, back into verse 3, back in Romans chapter 1. It says, Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh. This, this term, according to the flesh, doesn't just float here. For if the term according to the flesh was of itself and by itself, it would tell us nothing but the obvious, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? I mean, aren't you a descendant of your parents according to the flesh? We all are directly descended from our parents according to the flesh. There's something more here. And it's, and it's not just floated that it's according to the flesh and left at that. You see, as all of us are descended from our parents and so forth according to the flesh... You just look. You just don't write something that's stating the exact obvious or the real obvious. Okay, have a look at First Timothy chapter three, please, for a moment. First Timothy chapter three. Paul made this statement, and he said in verse sixteen, he said, "And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh." Justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. If you're reading out of a modern translation, you won't have God there. You won't have the word God there. You'll have the word he or who. Some of you might even have he who, but you won't have God. I can ask you a question. He was manifest in the flesh. Or he appeared in the body, which is what some of the modern translations say. He appeared in the body. Alright, anybody here hasn't appeared in the body? Everyone's appeared in the body. Why would you make a statement so vague? Why would you make a statement like that that really doesn't need to be made? Because we're all appeared in a body. That's nothing new. But the scriptures say God was manifest 
in the flesh. This is something to say. This is telling you something. It's saying a lot more than he appeared in the body. Okay? That's what I'm trying to say. To say, to say here that he was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, it's not left alone. And we know it's not left alone because we've got another verse that goes directly after it just for a little bit more clarity. And what does it say? It says he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So the passage indicates that. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9, please. Isaiah was written 700 odd years before Christ was born. It's part of the Old Testament. This particular passage is one of apparently 300 ancient prophecies promising the coming of this individual, promising the coming of Jesus Christ or the Christ. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 says this. Now keep this in mind, Christ was not yet manifest. He wasn't revealed. And this is a prophecy and it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Here we have this incredible prophecy. What an incredible picture. But I want you to have a look really carefully. And I've wondered this. What did the Jews make of this? This is in their book. This is the Old Testament. The Jews would have this. What do they make of a child being born, a son being given, and his name being called the mighty God, the everlasting Father? Well, what do they make of this? How do they reconcile the notion of God and yet a child being born with the same characteristics of God? This is an incredible picture. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. You don't have to turn there. Let me, let, me read, let me read to you what it says. This is another one of those ancient prophecies. This is an ancient prophecy that gives us a little bit more detail. Matter of fact, this is the very book that um, Herod was re- received from the wise men. They asked, he asked them, where was Jesus to be born? They found it right here in the Old Testament. Now, Michael was contemporary with Isaiah. So it was again around about 700 years before the birth of Christ. Have a listen to this. It says, but thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth, whose goings forth has been from old, from everlasting. The statement whose going forth has been from old, from everlasting, does not indicate that the Christ had an origin, but that he was from old, and more particularly from everlasting. In the Isaiah passage we just read, his name was to be called the Everlasting Father. Do you recognise that? Of course, if you've got a modern translation, you don't have that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What you have there is that his origin 
is from ancient times. His origin? Jesus Christ had an origin? I mean, everything that has an origin began, didn't it? But if the Christ is presented here as being the everlasting Father, how can he have ever begun? Now, we're told that they're well-meaning scholars that actually write these, these, these translations. And I would have to disagree. Because there isn't a manuscript that says origin. It says from old. And it's from everlasting. It's not from ancient times. That's the last little bit of picking on modern translations I'm going to be doing for the morning. Sorry about that, but I had to get my two bobs worth in. Only because, you know... A fundamental understanding of who Jesus Christ is. We take away a little bit of who he is. It creates confusion. And we know that God is not the author of confusion. We need consistency within the Bible. And if you've got inconsistency, you don't have a Bible. John chapter 17 verse 5. Jesus actually spends the time in prayer to the Father. The entire chapter. You know when we talk about the Lord's Prayer? Well the entire chapter of chapter 17 is the Lord's Prayer to the Father. And listen to what he says. He says... And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Friends, if Christ had an origin, it would have had to have at least happened before the world was. But the world happened pretty much at the beginning of time, so it had to happen before time. And that doesn't work out, because before time is everlasting. Within time, we don't have the everlasting. Anyway. Don't want to confuse you too much. Turn to John chapter 1, please. John chapter, chapter 1, verse 1. It's in the New Testament. One of the last of the Gospels. Again, what we're trying to do, and I want you to be clear on this, we've just established, one, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, two, what we're trying to establish is what the Scripture says about the actual nature of Christ, who He actually is. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Skip straight down to verse 14. And it says, And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you see the link? The word here describes one that was made flesh. In 1 John 5, 7, it says that there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. What a perfect picture of the Trinity. And this is an understanding of who Christ is. He is the Word. And here we have that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Is this not a claim in the Scripture that Jesus Christ is God? And yet we've got people all over the place saying, the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus Christ is God. Really? Well, look, whether you choose to believe that it's true or not is obviously up to you. But don't say the Bible doesn't present that Jesus Christ is God. He was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. The same person known as the Word is recognised here in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. We just read Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.16. 
And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. The Bible here teaches that God was made clear, visible, discernible, apparent, obvious. I looked up the word manifest and the dictionary definition is readily perceived by the senses and especially by the sight. By the sight. When the disciple Philip asked Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and sufficeth us. Sorry, a bit of a tongue twister. Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou, show us the Father? Got a friend of mine, and he wanted to meet my dad. And he says, you know, can I meet your dad? And I said, John, if you've seen me, you've seen my father. Does that make sense to you? Unless I was one with the father, unless I was one with the father, it's not something that you would say. So the idea also that gets floated around is that Jesus never claimed to be God. I heard that so often, even in theological institutions, like the theological college that I attended. Bible doesn't say that. Bible doesn't say that Jesus ever claimed to be God, really. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Oh, we don't stop there. Turn to John chapter 10. If you're still in John, turn to John chapter 10. This is such a beautiful portion of the Bible and it gives us such a reassurance, not just of who Christ is, but the incredible security that we have in who he is. And we're going to be reading from verse 27 to 33. And this is the Lord speaking. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. May I imagine the, the security that you have in the Lord. Christian, this is the security that you have in the Lord. On the one hand, Christ holds you here. And no man is able to pluck you out of his hand. And on the other hand, God holds you here. The Father holds you. And no man is able to pluck you out of his hand. Why? Because he's greater than all. And yet he says, I and my Father are one. This is the security that you have in God. If you're a child of His, that's the security that you have. That's the foundation that you have. But only if you have a right understanding of who Christ is. If you have a wrong understanding of who Christ is, where's your security now? What are you going to be relying on now? Take a look at the next couple of verses. It's, um, if I've got the right verses, I can't say if, if that's in the same book, but... Um, the Jews the Jews knew exactly what Jesus was saying oh yeah the next couple of verses straight after that one sorry so continue on for verse 31 sorry should be reading out of the Bible and I've got it here on the text to try and make it easy because I've got a small pulpit pastor another one here with a bigger anyway so the Jews knew exactly what Christ was saying if you ever want to know if you ever really really want to know when um, uh when Jesus has just said something profound, when Jesus has just said something really, really profound, you want to know how you can tell? 
the Jews want to kill him. Straight after he says something, if, they, if the next text says they picked up stones to throw at him, or they wanted to cast him off the hill, understand that he just said something vitally important that seriously ticked them off. And we've got it here. Verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? And the Jews replied this way. They said, The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Incredible, isn't it? The Jews knew what he was saying. Modern scholars don't. But the Jews knew what he was saying. Many Christians today don't. But the Jews knew what he was saying. He was making himself to be God. Jesus was claiming himself as God. And we've got it again in, 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 in John chapter 5.18. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Is it not plain? Is it not plain the claim that Christ was making? The reality is... The reality is possibly the most offensive to all who reject the Bible that Jesus Christ is God. It offends people. Now, before I became a Christian, every time I heard the name Jesus, there was something about it. It would it, it, it cut me, you know? It's like, oh, I could use it as a swear word, you know? Incidentally, I don't know anybody else's name who's ever used it as a swear word. I don't. I don't. I mean, I, I've never seen anybody, you know, stub their toe and say, Buddha! You know? You just don't, just don't hear it. But they use the Lord's name that way all the time. But when I used to hear that name, it'd, it'd, it'd make me uh, sick in here, you know? Before I come to know who he was. It'd, suddenly it would pierce me here and I couldn't understand why. But I remembered thinking like that and I've always carried that thought. Why don't I feel that way when Muhammad's name's used or this name's used or that? Why Jesus Christ? Why Jesus Christ? And why do so many pulpits today also not mention his name? Mention God, but they don't mention Jesus Christ. And I wonder why. Jesus said, The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. John 7, 7. The Bible is the most intriguing book in the world because there's no other book that so condemns man as the Bible does. There's no other book that tells man the truth of who he is. Today we have self-esteem classes all over the world. The power of positive thinking. Your God within yourself. You'll find the truth within you, etc., etc. That you are a good person. And you know what? We believe it. We believe it. We all believe it, don't we? I mean, I'm not as bad as him, you know. I mean, I'm not, you know. But we all want to puff ourselves up. The scripture says, no man think of himself any higher than he ought to think. And yet we do that all the time. But spend some time in prayer confessing sin before the Lord. And have a real look at who you are. Have a real look at the nature that is within you. A lot of people sit there saying, oh, it's not, it's not man that's bad. There's no evil people out there. It's society. It's society that does it. 
What's society made up of? It's made up of a whole bunch of individual people, yes? So how can you sit there and say that man is good but society is evil when society is made up of man? You know? But it's always trying to push back responsibility. We've been studying with Pastor Little in, in class about, about the nature of sin. And it's so much like that. It's always taking responsibility away from you. Every idea that's out there takes responsibility away from you. So if society is evil and you're a product of society, then the crime that I just committed is not really my fault. Because it was all, I was brought up like that, you see. I had a father that beat me to a pop. I was, I was abused when I was a child. I was this. I had, a, I had a, a, a grandmother that would forever be baking me apple stew. And I hate apple stew. And now I'm the way I am. So we got continuously blaming everybody else for who we are. But what happens when you front up to court? What happens when you front up to court? The judge sit there and say, oh, I understand you had a really tough relationship with your mother and this and that, and that apple stew must have been a real killer. I can understand exactly why you've raped that child. You understand? I mean, it's forever taking responsibility away from who we are and what we've done. That's why the Bible's hated, because it shines a light. But we don't like the light. We like the darkness. We like the darkness. Part three. Was God truly manifest in the flesh? Our framework text, that which we're dealing with, speaks clearly that the, go- that the gospel is that concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. The Bible here is teaching that God became a man and was born of the seed of David, a royal line. So it's a royal line of kings. You know, when you do your study in this, and I, I wanted to really bring it out today, but I was going to probably keep you here another 45 minutes. Um, when you do your study in this, and you discover that Jesus is the final person in the line of the Davidic line of kings. So you had David, and we got the Bible presenting us all the kings that came from King David, Right? Jesus Christ is the last person that can possibly fit that line. There is no one else that fits that line, legally and through the bloodline, when you trace them both down. Okay? He is the last one that fits that line. So, no other man apart from Christ. Why? Because Christ didn't have any more children. It was Christ. He is the last of them. And it's wonderful, wonderful to do that study. Have a look at Isaiah chapter 7, and we'll have a look at... This incredible miracle that has been promised again 700 years before Christ was born. And again, it's one of over 300 prophecies of his first coming when he would come the first time. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10. We're going to go to 14. Moreover, the Lord spake again to Ahaz, saying, Ahaz was the king of the time. He said, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? 
Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Keep the name Emmanuel in your mind just for a second. I've got to have another dig at the modern translation. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Couldn't resist. It's not so much the modern translations as much. There's not many that actually say anything different to the virgin. But there is the teaching that this is actually not virgin. The word here is not virgin, but it's a young lady, a young maiden. So I would ask you the question about this incredible miraculous sign that God is talking about here. Is it talking about a sign from the heights above and from the depths below? Ask a sign within the entire scope of this world and universe. An, an incredible sign. And Ahaz finally um, sort of, oh, I don't want to tempt the Lord, you know. I'm not going to ask you, you know. But the Lord says, oh, I'm going to give you a sign. Behold, a young lady's going to have a baby. Incredible sign, isn't it? I mean, that's something you really want to look for. You really need to look for that sign. Behold, the young lady's going to have a baby. Wow, that would have blown Ahaz off his feet. No. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. And there was a reason why it had to be a virgin to conceive. There was a reason why. Okay? I haven't got time to go into it now, but... It's incredible. The virgin had to conceive. And you know, in history, it was a shame for a young lady um, in, in Israel to go without a child. It's generally understood that if they go childless, then there's no hope for that person to ever give birth to the Messiah, the one that was promised to come. That's why Mary was so blessed before the Lord. You know, And all generations shall call her blessed as a result. She was the one specifically chosen by God, not on any merit on her part. And no, she didn't remain a virgin for the rest of her life. Understand that Jesus also had at least four brothers and at least two sisters. So, and we've got their names in Scripture except for the sisters. Unless they were all miraculously conceived, which I don't think is true. And Jesus was obviously the oldest. Have a look at Matthew chapter 1. Go back to Matthew. This gives us the detail of the fulfilment of this incredible sign. And remember, this is a sign that David, that um, that the line of David received from God Himself. Gospel of Matthew, chapter one. Now, the birth of Jesus. Oh, sorry, verse eighteen, verse eighteen to twenty-three. We're going. Now, the birth of Jesus was on this wise. When his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Recognise something, gentlemen, that if you were engaged to, to your future wife and before you even came together, she was found to be with child, the first thing in your mind would be to put her away. <laughs> you know, I mean, how can you marry someone that's already ready to have a child and you guys haven't even known each other that way? So you can understand Joseph's mindset at this point. We don't know how long it took, the, the time that lapsed between Joseph thinking this way and the Lord actually speaking to him. Okay? But it's important to recognise what he's thinking at this time. Let's go on. Verse 20. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, 
Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. The name Emmanuel means God with us. Recognise that in the Bible there is no name that doesn't have a definition. Every name is a name that has meaning. In the old days, we used to name our children with a certain meaning, a word that actually meant something. Okay? We looked up some of our names and it wasn't all that encouraging. But back then, they would definitely name their children something. We actually knew of somebody that named her daughter Jezebel, didn't we? I remember that. Wow, what a name to... Anyway... Obviously saw something in that child that... Anyway. um, What we're talking about is the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that his name was Emmanuel, that he was God with us. The last part. Part four. Why? Why? We went through part one and recognised that he is the Son of God. We recognised part two, that he is God manifest in the flesh. That the Bible clearly teaches, A, He is the Son of God. B, that He is God. That's what the Bible teaches. And three, or C, that the incarnation was something that was promised before and actually happened. That Jesus Christ actually came into this world. Incidentally, I want you to think for a second. He is never not going to be a man again. The Bible teaches that there is a man sitting at the right hand of the Father. That Jesus took off the clothing that he would have had before he was even incarnate. Before he became a man. 2,000 years. So for eternity past, Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit was one together. They still are one together. But he was never a man. He never took on physical form. The Bible says that God is spirit. And 2,000 years ago, he came into this earth as a man. And now he is still a man and he still bears the scars. He still bears the marks of his passion, the crucifixion on that cross. Remember when Timothy asked him, when um, Thomas asked him, and he, says, he, or he said to the disciples, he says, show us, uh, um, I won't believe whether I put my... My, my, my fingers in his nail prints or my hand in his side and the Lord turns up and he says Thomas put your hand here put your fingers here he still bears the marks interesting story got relates to me a while ago and, and I thought it was interesting and it was a man and his son and they were flying through the universe and the man said to his son and he stopped over this particular planet and that particular planet was just filled with dogs with, with dogs that were violent dogs these were rabid dogs these were dogs that, that you didn't want to know and the son said to the father why we stopped here and he said well I wanted you to see this because um, 
those dogs that are down there, I love them. And though they're, uh, they're not, they don't acknowledge me at all, um, I need to get a message to them. And the son says, oh, right, that's fair enough. And he says, no, well, well, see, what I want you to do is I want you to go down to that planet and I want you to deliver that message. And the son says, all right, all right, that's, that's fine, that's fine. He said, but I've got to tell you ahead of time that um, they're not going to receive your message. They're not going to receive your message. They're not going to receive your message at all. But also, I need you to understand that um, in order for you to really get the message to them so they can understand... Um, you're going to have to become a dog, just like them. Now, if a man, to take a step down from being a man to a dog, and yet we have the Lord our God making and condescending himself from God incarnate to becoming a man like us, to get a message to us, a message of the gospel, a message of love and hope and joy, and yet he is stayed a man and remained a man for the rest of existence. And we know that that's true, according to the scripture. So why did the Lord become man? The Bible says and indicates to us that it was to reveal God in us. Quote by Charles Reary says, Though God reveals himself in various ways, including the magnificence of nature around us, only the incarnation revealed the essence of God. The only way man can see the Father is to know about the Son. And the only way we can do that today is through studying the record of his life in the scriptures. Because he became a man, the revelation of God was personalised. Because he is God, the revelation is completely truthful. The other area, the other reason, another reason where, why Jesus Christ had to become a man. And there was a range of these and I've only selected a couple for the sake of time. And it was to provide an effective sacrifice for sin. Without the incarnation, we would have no saviour. Sin requires death for its payment. But God does not die. So the saviour must be human in order to be able to die. But the death of an ordinary man would not pay for sin eternally. And not for every person. So the Saviour must also be God. Only the sacrifice of one of infinite worth can pay for the sin of all men. The sacrifice was given once and for all. It was given once, guys. It was given once for all. Hebrews 10.10 says, "By By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 10, 12 to 14 says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering hath he perfected forever them that are sanctified. Hebrews 9, 12 says, Neither by the blood of of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Friends, the perverted offering of the Mass during Roman Catholic services where Christ is offered and is to suffer again and again and again is a massive distortion of what the Bible teaches. Removing the finished work on the cross where salvation is made sure to all that believe 
the perpetual offering of Christ leaves the work of Christ unfinished and up to us to complete. Jesus Christ died once and he died once for all. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, 26 to 28, For then must he have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so was Christ once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. It is appointed for men once to die, and after this the judgment. Regardless of whether you think you won't be judged, or whether you don't think it won't take away that reality. But you need a covering. And this is the very reason why Jesus Christ came. He came to die for you, for your sins, for everything that you've done in your history and moving forward that you might be again with him and have your life lived with him. Oh, there's another reason. He is to be a sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. See, understanding something, that the Lord knows our infirmities. He knows what we've gone through. How can you be judged by somebody that doesn't know what you're going through? The Bible indicates that he suffered more than any man. And here we have, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And also, to be able to be qualified as a judge, you have to be a peer. We see that in the same systems that we have today that we are judged by our peers. We cannot be judged by those that are not our peers. And the Lord Jesus Christ needed to be man in order to be that perfect judge. In John chapter 5, 22, it says, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honour the Son, even as they honour the Father. He that honoureth not the Son honoureth not the Father, which, he, which had sent him. And he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word... And believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death to life. What an incredible joy. What an incredible hope. Romans 10.9, the last verse, and I'll finish on this verse, says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, Thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Within your own heart, if there is an identification, if you recognise now, after so long, that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, and that he has died to take away your sin freely, do you understand it's a gift? And this is what we teach. It's a gift. It's a gift from God that we can either accept or reject. You see, there is no other way that you can be saved. Either you're going to have to stand there in a given account one by one before a holy God. Though you have put your conscience away, that you have crushed it, that you've trampled on it, you've made sure that that won't rise up again. 
Yet on that day, that day the Bible talks about as a day of judgment, you will have to give an account if you're not covered by the blood of Christ. And it's going to be individual, and it's going to be one at a time, and your mouth will be stopped. You will not be able to give a defence before God. But Christ came to save you from that. Hell wasn't something that was created for man. It was created for the devil and his angels. But we fall into the same condemnation because A, we are born in sin. Two, B, we are sinners. We do do that. Each one of us, none of us here have been perfect. None of us ever will be. Well, not in this life anyway. So there is an opportunity. If you believe that within your heart, then you can be saved if you're not already. And if you are, if you are a Christian... This is a message that needs to go out, guys. Now, I look at the size of this hall and I look at, you know, we've got, a, we've got a good number of people here. And yet it should be packed. It's the simplest message in the world. And yet for some reason it seems to be the most difficult to be able to propagate. We've got churches all over the place that don't teach this. I got told in my first church not to preach doctrine. Oh, what else do you preach? What else do you preach if you can't preach the word of God? And each one of us, me included, have a responsibility to share this incredible truth. No, they won't all receive the message. No, they won't. But it is true and it is good news. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you, dear Lord, and thank you for stirring our heart. Thank you, dear Lord, for demonstrating to us exactly who you are and what the Bible teaches about who you are. Lord, I pray that each of us will rejoice in our own salvation, rejoice in the knowledge that we have heaven to look forward to, and that wonderful foundation that we now have, we now have assurance, and that we can go on and live our lives with joy and be able to bring this incredible news to people all the way around us. But I also pray, dear Lord, pray for those that don't know you yet that a stirring in the heart would be given and that indeed the courage to take you at your word would be had, that in their own heart, dear Lord, they would believe at a salvation. Lives would be changed and a joy would be had. A new path would be taken, dear Lord, one of light, one of truth, one of assurance and one of absolute security. Lord, be with us now as we, as we go our own ways. Be with us during the week, dear Father, and bring us again together safely. If you should tarry, dear Lord, we praise you and we thank you, dear Father, with all our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.